0: If it is not Christ living in and through me, then I throw up my hands. I don't know how that I've forgiven anyone ever, really, apart from that notion of being reminded of as you have been forgiven.
1: Well, hey there all souls, and welcome to the As It Is in Heaven podcast, a companion to our sermon series as we walk through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In these conversations, we're going to explore aspects of Jesus' teaching that require a deeper look. This last Sunday, we did a 30,000-foot flyover of one of the most familiar and important passages of Scripture ever, as Jesus taught His disciples how to pray. But of all the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, there's only one that Jesus circles back around on. And it's this one from Matthew 6, 14, and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Forgiveness is hard. To better understand the heart of Jesus' teaching, I sat down with Dr. Jeff Ashby, a licensed psychologist and professor of counseling psychology at Georgia State University, also a longtime member of All Souls. And we talked about what forgiveness does for the person who is wronged, what the obstacles for forgiveness are, and how the professional research on forgiveness helps us understand the core of Jesus' teaching. Welcome Jeff, thanks for being with
0: us. Pleasure to be here, thanks.
1: There are a lot of layers to forgiveness. Perhaps in the church we tend to gravitate maybe toward one layer, uh, maybe the deepest layer of those and that is what Christ has done on the cross.
0: But what are some other ways that we think about forgiveness that you've come across? Well certainly in the psychological literature when we think about forgiveness, uh, at the core is an offense, an injury. There's an injured and then there's the perpetrator right uh, and the forgiveness has to happen between those two people in the same way you know i can't grant forgiveness to someone who hasn't offended or injured me it has to be given by the person who has been been injured or offended the burden falls to the one who has been offended or injured to offer that up and sometimes you do it in the absence of the request for forgiveness. No one's coming to you for any number of reasons. The person isn't available, the person sometimes is long deceased, or doesn't see that they're in the wrong necessarily. All that makes it more complicated, but it really comes to us as those to say, am I going to choose to forgive someone who has offended or injured me? I think in the Jewish tradition, that
1: kind of corresponds to the most basic form of forgiveness The Hebrew word is mechilah, which is this kind of foregoing of the other person's indebtedness. It's not necessarily like a posture of the heart. It's not about reconciliation. It's not being necessarily even restored in relationship to the one who wronged you. It's deciding that you're no longer essentially going to prosecute the case. But it only comes when the person offers sincere repentance. That's kind of a key ingredient, at least in Jewish thinking. Moses Maimonides, one of the great medieval scholars within Judaism, was very clear on that point that it's a moral obligation when the person is sincere and deeply sorry, or even takes steps to correct what they have done wrong, that in those circumstances, you must offer uh, Mikayla forgiveness. But absent those things, it's a whole another story.
0: Most of the psychological literature is really based around the costs of unforgiveness hmm. for the person who's been injured and those costs are significant um, yeah
1: say a little bit more about that like what happens within the soul of a person who doesn't
0: offer forgiveness There's a, a quote by a researcher worthington who says you know it's impossible to live healthy lives without forgiving you know unforgiveness is related to anxiety depression major psychiatric disorders uh, more health problems increased blood pressure and that makes sense when you think about the notion of unforgiveness at the root of that is is bitterness anger fear We often think about that as related to an autonomic or stress response in individuals and there's a huge cost to sort of stress and chronic stress in people's lives. So when we think about the connection between unforgiveness and the things that we're interested in as health professionals or mental health professionals and those uh, significant symptoms or opportunities for distress, really the moderator, the thing that makes a difference is stress. And that unforgiveness really is a, is a state of distress for the person who has been injured. We process forgiveness as in it's somehow corresponding to
1: God's forgiveness of us. So our forgiveness is contrasted in the Lord's Prayer with how we are forgiven. Mm. The, the prayer is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So it's kind of in the same way that we offer forgiveness, we ask for God's forgiveness for us. It's the only thing in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus then circles back around on and says, if you don't forgive, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. But you're saying that, you know, in addition to kind of the spiritual significance of it, there's a whole range of health problems associated with holding on.
0: And so the primary rationale from a traditional psychological perspective is it's better for you. It's yeah. better for you if you'll, in fact, forgive others. Here are the benefits to that. We're going to acknowledge those as people of faith, but we're also going to respond to the higher calling. But in addition, you have the advantage. When you think about forgiveness, and psychologists have tried to break it down to say, what do you actually need to do? So if you want to feel better, live longer, have less stress, etc., what are the steps of forgiveness? And there are a number of models, but... Primary of the model is this idea of acknowledgement or recognition of the wrong. And that is to say, to not sell it short. To say, oh, that's all right, or it was no big deal. is not forgiveness, because it doesn't acknowledge the offense. So an important step in forgiveness is the sober sort of examination, um, without excessive drama, but also without underplaying what the offense was. And then the notion that you have to give an altruistic gift of forgiveness. That's the phrase they use often in the psychological literature.
1: Unpack that a little bit for us. What is is
0: an altruistic gift? It's got to be without condition. That's to say it has to be offered, the acknowledgement, I may never get from you, the acknowledgement that you even think this was an offense, if it was a small thing. Or they had excuses for your behaviors, your actions, etc. That you're never quite going to own up, as it were to come forward and say, need your forgiveness in these ways. You're gonna hedge your bets, et cetera. But even in those circumstances, I'm gonna give you this gift of forgiveness. I'm gonna hold no account, as it were. And But the rationale is always, so I'll feel better later. Mm. And I think the distinctive of the Christian perspective is that I have, first, a higher calling than simply my own well-being, <laughs> that I'll feel less distressed, anxious, etc. I'm gonna live in the grace that God is giving me that allows me to do these things, but also, as is illustrated you know, simply in the Lord's Prayer, a model for you know, the purest altruism. And so you have this, it's a response for us, and to some extent for people outside of faith, it has to be mustered as opposed to simply responding.
1: Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is different in that our forgiveness of others is contrasted with how we are forgiven by our Father. Forgiveness heals the brokenness inside of us. And so, when Peter asks Jesus later on, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? He thinks, in his mindset, that he is being extremely generous. Seven times big deal, the number of completion. But Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven, or 490 times. I mean, how would you even keep track of that? Would you tell somebody when they're at 483 times, hey, buddy, you're on thin ice here. In one of the biblical manuscripts that we found, one of the scribes wrote 70 times 7 per day. And I think that scribe kind of gets the point. Yeah, we have the, the benefit of the recognition of how deeply we have been forgiven. In the post-Christian context in which we are living, People don't necessarily think of themselves primarily in categories of you know sin and repentance There are words that people flee from out in the culture i imagine that makes it a little bit harder for people to have a healthy paradigm for what forgiveness looks like
0: i think that's true i think often when we think of examples though we do think of clear offenses that whether we would you know hold a modern postmodern, or <laughs> whatever's next perspective uh, marital infidelity yeah, Yeah. You know, it's, it's breaking a promise. There's pretty widely acknowledgement that that's an offense. And uh, you think about that as a kind of egregious pain that you know one partner brings to another, it's I think more complicated in the sort of regular social sort of discourse that we have. And many of us have been in circumstances where some have said to the uh, to another, i likely have said at some point in time, you know, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. Which is a nice way of saying, "I'm sorry you're so sensitive. I'm sorry you're not smart enough to know what I really meant there. I'm sorry that you didn't grow up in a sarcastic family as I did, etc." There isn't really the acknowledgement in the same way, and so there are a kind of there are kind of mock apologies or whatever, where you're the person who's been offended, person who's been injured, now has to either uh, acknowledge this, you know, insincere. It feels like request for forgiveness, or sort of stake out new ground, et cetera. And I think in those circumstances, it gets very complex in the social context we're in now.
1: Yeah. So if the health benefits are pretty clear and the consensus of the psychological field is that, yeah, it may be of some benefit to the other person, but primarily the benefit is to you as the person who does not hold on to the anger, resentment, bitterness. Why is it so hard for us to forgive? What are some of the common reasons that you
0: hear of? Well, um, I think one of the things is that it would excuse the other person's behavior. It would dismiss it as if it wasn't really a wrong. And I think that's, again, some mistaken notion, even the traditional psychological interventions are going to acknowledge first that you you recognize the other action. Yep. Again, just sort of a sober acknowledgement of it. Yeah, I mean, there's a
1: second kind of forgiveness in the Jewish tradition called sechailah, which is an act of the heart. It's a moving toward understanding, even a kind of empathy of the person who has wronged you. Again, it's not something that excuses actions per se, but in contrast to that first kind, which is just simply canceling the indebtedness that the person owes, this is kind of coming toward an empathy with the person who has wronged you. It's kind of a recognition of the fact that they are frail and and human. And in that way, deserving of sympathy kind of helps you extend mercy toward the person. I think of people who have pain from their family of origin. That's often the way that forgiveness takes shape in their own family. It doesn't erase the pain of the childhood scars. It doesn't kind of undo that. But it enables them to see that their their mother or their father or their sibling had their own brokenness, their own pathology kind of in their life. And that helps them, again, not excuse the pain that was inflicted, but release the person from the prison that they put them in, which in turn helps them find that kind of release. But yeah, I think you're right. I think people do conflate the idea of forgiveness with that means it's somehow excusing the action
0: Or that forgive and forget are are wed together and can't be separated. Um, Which isn't even possible, really. First, isn't possible. And second, in certain situations is unwise. So there are people in abuse situations who are able to work through the difficult process of forgiveness, but it would be unwise to forget because they are often still at risk in those situations one wouldn't want to put oneself, or you want to counsel someone to put oneself in a a position where they could be re-victimized based on the power of the person who had perpetrated the initial injury, etc. And so that's a difficult thing, I think, to separate at times.
1: Yeah, my friend Dave tells a story of doing crisis marriage counseling with a couple where the woman had just confessed to having an affair the day before, and this couple is in counseling, and the man says, it's okay, I forgive you. Even though this thing just happened to him, but she ended up leaving him because she took that as, like, well, you don't really think it's all that big of a deal. Like, if you were that quick to forgive me, then it must not be that important to you that I've actually... So, in a sense, like, that forgive and forget, uh, moving too quickly, that, that can be something that backfires and doesn't really allow the person to move through the process of grieving and acknowledging the brokenness and wrong that was done to them.
0: We often think about forgiveness as two steps or stages. There's a kind of intellectual mastery or process where I can work it through intellectually. I can acknowledge in a sober way this was a real, a real offense, a real injury. Um, I can generate empathy for the other person. As you suggested, given that they that we're all frail, broken, people have their own life circumstances, um, I can sort of work through it and acknowledge that I I owe the other person the altruistic gift of forgiveness because of what's been done for me um, through the cross. I can work that through intellectually, but I also have to work through it emotionally.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and all of the models of forgiveness out of which you know the research comes acknowledge that forgiveness is a process and not an event.
1: As a culture, we hear stories like the 2006 shooting at an Amish school uh, near Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, and how the victims of the community mobilized very quickly to secure a fund for the shooter's family and support her. And we think, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's, a re- it's that reflex. Latasha Morris makes a really good point of this in Be the Bridge in recalling the trial of Dylan Roof who walked into the Mother Emanuel AME church and shot 15 people at a Bible study. And the presiding judge urged the victims in his opening statement to grieve, but to move toward forgiveness. And there was a lot of pushback in the culture from that. It's like, well, well, why are you moving from the victim's experience of pain to their compulsion to forgive? without, you know, going through that process. And sure enough, a number of the people in the trial did offer forgiveness, but there were some who acknowledged that they they wanted to move there, but they were not there yet. And as you said, we we don't think always that there is this whole process involved with forgiveness. We think that as Christians, perhaps, those of us in the church, that we need to do it fast. And that if we don't do it fast, then we're not living into our identity as followers of Jesus but you can actually bury and repress your feelings if you move too quickly.
0: And skips over that process of a sober account right. of the injury, of facing that and acknowledging, here's what happened, here's the injury that occurred. Small or, like I say, egregious and monumental, as in the case you know, and to skip over that is a kind of false forgiveness. Yeah. Um, as you say, it, it minimizes, et cetera. And we don't have good data on this, but one would suspect that if you're not actually moving through that process, as is sort of documented, that you're not going to have the same personal effects, et cetera. And remember that part of what you're doing when you're harboring uh, bitterness, anger, fear, you know, from a psychological perspective, we you know th- it, that takes emotional energy. So we talk about sort of shoring that up, or the idea or harboring these things. And it takes energy to keep them in. And they take so much of your energy, life space, et cetera, you're not free to to love, to prosper, to engage in ministry, etc. You really do lay a burden down when you forgive. Uh, but it's an entire process, not just a single event, as it were. And I think to your point earlier, forgiveness is countercultural. Think about the narratives in our culture and, you know, um, many of us are binging Netflix and everything else we can, et cetera. And if you begin to, you know, you see just the patterns and, you know, a friend of mine teaches film and he says, there really, there are four stories. There are four stories. We're telling the four stories over and over again. And one of those stories is what? We're building up, right? Resentment toward some villain character who is injuring others and we're holding out for the final scene. And the final scene is not a scene of forgiveness. It's a scene of the villain getting what's been coming to them. Yeah. And I have a sense of satisfaction when it's over. And so forgiveness is a countercultural thing.
1: Yeah. No, we're all a little bit more John Wick than we are (laughs) anything else. We want to see retributive action more than we do want to see forgiveness. Mm -hmm. We don't ever want that directed toward ourselves, which is the paradox that we live by. In his book, The Sunflower, Simon Wiesenthal frames the question of forgiveness around an incident that took place when he was interned at a concentration camp during World War II. One day, he and his work detail were sent to clean medical waste at a converted army hospital for wounded German soldiers. And the only reference in the book to sunflowers comes from this occasion. Weisenthal writes, Our column suddenly came to a halt at a crossroads. I could see nothing that might be holding us up, but I noticed on the left of the street there was a military cemetery. And on each grave there was planted a sunflower. I stared spellbound. Suddenly I envied the dead soldiers, each had a sunflower to connect him with the living world and butterflies to visit his grave. For me, there would be no sunflower. I would be buried in a mass grave where corpses would be piled on top of me. No sunflower would ever bring light into my darkness, and no butterflies would dance above my dreadful tomb. When his work group arrived at a hospital, A nurse came up to Weisenthal and asked, Are you a Jew? Kind of a silly question. But before he could even respond, she led him into the hospital building to the bedside of Karl, a 21-year-old Nazi soldier who had been mortally wounded. Karl's head was covered in bandages, and as he lay dying, he was desperate to tell his story. Karl described himself as a happy, dreamy child, His father was a social democrat, and his mother was steeped in Catholicism and brought Karl up in the church. Like most German young men, he was swept up in the populist wave, and Karl joined the Hitler Youth. Later, he volunteered for the SS, a decision that would permanently alienate him from his father. Karl told Simon that his unit had been deployed to the Eastern Front in Russia, where they came upon a village with a large Jewish population. He then described how the soldiers in his unit filled a two-story home with petrol and forced all of the Jews inside and then boarded up the doors and windows on the first floor before lobbing grenades into the home. Carl recounted how he saw in the silhouette of the second-floor window a man with a small child in his arms. His clothes were on fire and beside him stood the child's mother. With his free hand, the man covered the child's eyes and then he jumped into the street. Seconds later, the mother followed, but before they could even reach the ground, their bodies were riddled with bullets. The horror of the moment and the callous laughter of his fellow soldiers haunted Carl in the days ahead. Weeks later, as his division was pinned down in battle in the Crimea, Carl climbed out of his trench but stood paralyzed by the memory of the family leaping from the window frozen, he was struck by a shell and awoke in the hospital, mortally wounded, waiting for death. So he turned to Simon at this point and said, "'Worse than the pain of my body is the pain of my conscience. I cannot die without coming clean. In the last few hours of my life, you are with me. I do not know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew, and that is enough.'" In the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him, only I didn't know whether there were any Jews left. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer I cannot die in peace." Simon paused, and then without a word he got up and left the room. As he returned to the camp, he asked a rabbi what he should have done. And the rabbi told him, No, it is not yours to forgive. He didn't wrong you. The only ones who could offer forgiveness are now dead. So no, it was right for you not to forgive. But since Carl was Catholic, Simon asked a priest who had been interned in the camp as well, and the priest said, There is always room for forgiveness. You should have offered it. When his group returned to the hospital the next day, the same nurse came to Simon and told him that Carl had died. Over the next years of the war, time and time again, throughout all of his suffering, Simon thought of Carl and wondered if he should have forgiven him. The Sunflower is an exploration of that question. Weisenthal asked several Jewish, Catholic, and Protestant theologians Should we always offer forgiveness? What does it mean? to forgive.
0: I think my silence here is telling. (laughs) When we think about forgiveness, we have a default to think about our own lives, the kinds of things we've experienced, some people with very difficult backgrounds and experiences that offer opportunities for forgiveness. But it's always also sort of a reach beyond. That you know this is difficult, etc. But I can't imagine whatever that next step is. I I do some research in the refugee community in Clarkston, and I'm, I'm roughly a third of refugees meet the UN United Nations definition for survivors of torture which is a unique form of injury. Wow, up to a third. Yeah, when you think about that, and that's a UN definition, it doesn't even include family members and other kinds of things like that. When you think about the kind of direct, it has to be physical torture in most circumstances, and then the psychological effects of that, subsequent trauma, cumulative trauma, etc. You think about that kind of, how does one forgive, especially the, it's, it is the intentional infliction right, of pain for another purpose, etc., and it's ongoing and systematic. When you think about those kinds of extreme situations, most of our most of us are undone by it. Um, I certainly am. And hearing those stories, talking with those folks, etc. Kind of the um, paradigms fly out the window. Yeah, yeah. A default is to go back to C.S. Lewis because he said almost everything well. <laughs> um, He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It's a quote from Weight of Glory. It's a famous quote, but we cut it there. The next line, Lewis says, this is hard. Yeah. And I think it is one of the places where we bump into that notion of, you know, what does it mean to live the Christian life? And if it is not Christ living in and through me, then I throw up my hands. I don't know how that I've forgiven anyone ever, really, apart from that notion of being reminded of as you have been forgiven. Um, I'm not a good enough person to generate the psychological model that's been suggested. Even though it would be better for me in the end, I'm pretty sure I would harbor instead of forgiving. I don't care if it's making me anxious, depressed, etc. I'm still going to hold on to whatever that is. I think it has to do with the fragility of self, for those of us who can't, don't feel like we can incur an injury, whether it's to our self-esteem or sense of efficacy in the world or to our physical selves. But the idea to realize that you are complete in that you are forgiven, God has begun to work in you, that he's going to continue. gives me space then to extend in ways that I never thought I could personally otherwise, although I can't imagine a situation like this, concentration camps or or like the survivors of torture. Yeah.
1: One other thing that keeps us from forgiving sometimes is that we think of forgiveness and reconciliation being equated when they're actually two distinct parts of the process. In a sense, forgiveness is unilateral. The person who has been wronged releases the person who has done the wrong from the consequences of the action. It's that saying, you no longer have to pay for what has done, or if you do, I personally will not choose to continue to harbor ill will toward you. And that's, as we've said, as much about the freedom of the person doing the releasing as the person who's been released. But reconciliation is a bilateral action in that it's two people coming together, but it's an action that can only flow out of forgiveness. It can only happen after the first step has taken place. The person who has done wrong has been released, then moving toward the person that they have wronged and saying, let me repair with you what I have broken. That's what Jesus has done as true God and true man on our behalf, but it's also what he calls us toward. and calls us to participate in. Paul talks about in Second Corinthians that we are called to the ministry of reconciliation in the research that you've come across, is there a lot of talk about those two things as distinct steps or as much attention paid to uh, reconciliation?
0: Now the focus primarily has been on forgiveness um, because you say so many circumstances do not involve a willing other <laughs> in the process. Working with psychotherapy clients years ago who were uh, survivors of childhood sexual abuse and the abuser's now deceased. So injury is still there Yeah, and the need for forgiveness in terms of what it was costing the survivor that it was necessary, and yet there was no one with whom you could reconcile. But also all the ongoing offenses you know, yeah. in, in day-to-day life, the person who is unrepentant, who thinks you're being thin-skinned, or doesn't see the world you do, the way you do, et cetera, and doesn't feel like been, there's nothing they need to be forgiven for, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> We're still called in that same way. So the focus has been the research really on that, in part because it is the only thing that is under the control of the decider in this case. You know, yeah. As much as I would love to bring you to a point of acknowledging this so that we could move toward reconciliation, acknowledging your part in it, there's no way to bring that about in another person in any reliable way, but I can control how I'm going to move through the world, my posture toward you, the steps I'll take, et cetera.
1: I think the grace is to say it's in as much as it depends on you be at peace with everyone, as Paul says in Romans, but you cannot force a person toward reconciliation. You can, however, choose to forgive. And those two things are not the same. Reconciliation is a distinct act, and I think there can be some freedom for people who don't conflate those two things.
0: So often in interpersonal interactions, there is an offense that is unintended. Sometimes they're intended, but especially as we are stressed, as we are now, they're not our best operating without thinking about how i'm communicating etc the opportunities to offend especially using electronic media mm. email text and other things like that where you don't have the advantage of body language facial expression you know if i'm saying something the same way i would have typed it and i see you raise an eyebrow i'll change what i'm saying because i clearly i'm not communicating what i meant to
1: none all of those, smiles
0: here by the way <laughs> none of those advantages and so there is the sort of opportunity for offense that wasn't intended, sort of on a constant kind of way. And what we often do is dismiss instead of address. And when we dismiss, we set them aside, but we don't really put them away. And so in relationships, these will sometimes mount and mount and mount and mount. And then there is the uh, straw that broke the camel's back, et cetera, the idea. It's not about this specific thing, it's the fact that we haven't had open and candid conversations in relationships. So when you said this I felt this formula that <laughs> is just that's just candid and clear um, without being accusatory and the other person could say I really understand how you could get that from what I said. That's perfectly reasonable. Not what I meant to communicate. You know, the ideal communication that happens so rarely in my relationships, but that notion of when you're having those kinds of conversations and you have the opportunity to grant and ask for forgiveness what you have is stronger community. So when people ha- have the opportunity to do that and practice it in those communities, what you have is the kind of communities then can rally around. Where now we've been honest in these small ways, I can be honest about my angst with my job, my concern about my children, whatever deep struggles I'm having about which I'm deeply ashamed. Forgiveness is a kind of authenticity in relationship that allows for that. I think that's in the sort of day-to-day that happens. I also think that many of us have had, again, what I think of as large and egregious injuries or offenses, sexual assault, the kinds of things that we, we shudder about and tend not to think about or talk about a lot, but that the process of working through those, whether it's traditional post-traumatic stress disorder or some other presentation, the idea that at some point there has to be a kind of self-reconciliation to reconcile with the event and the perpetrator. And the healthiest way to do that is through a process of forgiveness, which is not a denial of the act or the pain. But that's where, in my experience, people are able to pivot toward, I think, greater well-being and mental health.
1: And I think the experience of being able to forgive someone opens up that space in the theological imagination to realize, if this pain that I'm carrying, I can forgive, it helps me understand God's grace and forgiveness
0: toward me. And that, in turn, empowers me all the more to extend that, I understand at a deeper level to what extent I've been forgiven as a true altruistic gift.
1: We walk around with all kinds of pain when we fail to forgive. And when we don't confess, we actually impede forgiveness from taking place, from setting ourselves free, and from those who we have wronged. I want to thank my guest Jeff Ashby for sitting down with me today and lending his expertise and wisdom and also to Casey Johnson for making sure that our audio sounds clear. So as we end the podcast today, who do you need to forgive? Who is God bringing to your mind? What are you waiting for? That's all for this episode. Grace and peace to you, all souls.